0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin, I would first like to thank the most recent donors to the Salon who have made their contributions through the forums. And these wonderful fellow saloners are George C., Rock Z., Candy R., and Paris Films, all of whom are now subscribed to the forums as lifetime members. And on behalf of all of our fellow saloners, I want to thank you all very much because thanks to your generous donations, these podcasts are going to keep on coming. Also, I'd like to mention the fact that this past week or so, we've been experiencing a few problems with the forums. And my guess is that by updating several plugins recently, I've uh, introduced a few collisions here and there between them. And I'll try to get all of that untangled as soon as I can. So, uh, let's get back to the last part of the Terrence McKenna workshop that we've been listening to for the past few weeks. Now, I have to warn you that I had to cut out about 20 minutes of this talk. You see, after about 10 minutes, you are going to begin hearing Terence's voice begin to warble a little bit. At first, I thought that my tape player had caused it, and so I exercised the tape several times and digitized it twice, and both times it came out exactly, as in exactly the same way at the same point. Granted, it uh, still may be my player, but I'm guessing that the problem was actually in either the original recording or in my copy of the tape. Either way, uh, after a while, it didn't become exactly unlistenable. It was more like it started to, uh, well, make me laugh a little bit because Terrence started sounding more and more like he was drunk or something. Obviously, uh, it was kind of distracting, so I had to cut it out. But if you absolutely want to know what he was saying in that part, I'm posting it at the end of this podcast after I sign out. And uh, yes, the speed of that section can be adjusted... But since it's not uniform, it would uh, take a lot more time to fix than I care to give it. However, uh, if you or one of our other fellow saloners wants to give it a try, uh, fixing the speed and then post it in the comments for today's program notes, well, that would be great. And I also want to mention one last thing before I play today's talk, which, uh, of course, is the final segment of a May 1991 workshop about the hermetic tradition that uh, was led by Terrence McKenna. Well, this now marks the salon's 234th talk featuring Terrence. Obviously, uh, he has had a big impact on me. In fact, had I never come across him and his work, I would now most likely be a retired corporate geek living in Florida, and uh, quite depressed, I suspect. If you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you also know that there were some of Terrence's ideas, uh, such as the time wave, that I never could buy into and that I rejected out of hand. Knowing how deeply Terence was invested in his time-wave ideas uh, actually, I guess, should have caused me to shy away from him. But for some reason, his lectures continue to draw me like a moth to a flame. Not all of them, but many of them, to be sure. So when we get to the last seven minutes or so of this talk, just before I return with a few afterthoughts, well, when you listen to him take off on a poetic rhapsody about the eschaton, or whatever he wants to call it... Well, those are the verbal flourishes that continue to draw me in, not so much for the words themselves, but for the feeling and thoughts that they provoke in me. But then don't forget that I'm just an old sentimental Irishman who loves bardic prose. And now with that nonsense out of the way, I'll begin by playing the last minute or so from last week's podcast so as to remind you where we left off, and then I'll pick up with the final segment.
1: All magical codes, if you know the Trithemian method, within a few hours you can get plain text. Well, the Vonich manuscript did not yield at all to this method, and... um, The CIA formed a a working group that for over 10 years would invite scholars in to have a look at this. And uh, if you're interested in this, uh, Marie de Imperio, who was a great Renaissance scholar, wrote a book called uh, The Vonich Manuscript, An Elegant Enigma, in which she traces the efforts of the CIA to figure this thing out and figure out what it could be. Well, there the matter uh, rested until about three years ago when, uh, um, I think his name is Leo Levertov, some kind of military historian, one of these peculiar people who live for this stuff, he got a hold of it and he said and De imperial goes through all the decipherment and there were many efforts at decipherment. There was a scholar at Yale in the 20s named Brumbaugh who was a very respected man who ruined himself by claiming a complete decipherment of the Vonich Manuscript and, you know, when you, the way the game is played is you say what your rules for the decipherment were, you give them to a colleague, you give the rules to a colleague, and you give your colleague a page of text. If he can't translate it with your rules, then you are viewed as uh, deluded and misguided person and your career goes down in flames. Well, the Brumbayan method for deciphering the, deciphering the Vonich manuscript had to do with confined pools of letters where it would get you to a pool of five or six letters, but then you could freely choose which one you used, and critics of Brumbaugh demonstrated that you could make this thing say anything you wanted it to. <laughs> Brumba supported Dee's claim. He claimed that it deciphered out into a Roger Bacon manuscript d- that described a series of riots between the students and the Black Friars at Christmas time in 1385 uh, at Oxford. But nobody else could make it say that or make it say anything. So Brumbaugh disgraced him and ruined his career. So then, And then there were other efforts at decipherment, which I won't bore you with.
2: But along comes Leo Levertov, just four years ago, and he wrote a book called The Vonich Manuscript, A Liturgical Manual for the Catharites. And his great breakthrough, if you accept his translation, and I do, I know people who don't, but they don't seem to have read him as carefully as I have. I think the dude has it pretty well nailed to the barn door. His great breakthrough was to realize that it's not in code. It is not an encrypted manuscript at all. What it is, is it's a synthetic alphabet, yes. It's an alphabet that no... And one of the things that baffled the CIA was they looted the libraries of Europe and they could never find another example of what is called a Vonage script. And this was just baffling. I mean, how could there be uh, um, uh, no other example of this script? Well, it appears that what happened was um, someone created a synthetic alphabet and then, in a mixture of uh, medieval polyglot Flemish, with a huge number of loan words in Old French, Middle High German, and Swedish, uh, wrote down a, a sacramental, man, uh, a sacramental manual for the dying in the Catharite sect. (laughs) Now, what is the Catharite sect? Uh, You're probably familiar with something called the Albigensian Crusade. This was not a crusade carried on against the infidel for the recovery of Jerusalem, but rather a, a series of military actions carried on by the Pope against communities in Southern France in the uh, early 1200s. And these people were Catharites. They were, as far as we can tell, and we can't tell much, because we only have descriptions of the Catharites written by the people who were burning them at the stake. In other words, no original Catharite documents survive, we just have what they screamed out on the rack as they were being put to death by the bishops of the church. And this was a horrific incident in uh, European history. Uh, To give you the flavor of it, the Second Albigensian Crusade was prosecuted by a general of the Pope named Simon de Montfort. And his lieutenants came to him uh, at a point, and some of you may have visited the city of Carcassonne in southern France, which is a walled medieval city, very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And Simon de Montfort's lieutenants came to him and told him, they said, uh, uh, we have cornered the Catharites at Carcassonne. Uh, But the problem is, there are 6,000 Catholics within the city walls. And he said, kill everybody, God will recognize his own. So that was the spirit in which this thing went forward. And they did. They did. Uh, So... What we do know about the Catharites is that they, they had a sacrament, the holiest mist. Well, first let me tell you a little bit more about them. Uh, at first it was thought that they were pretty much heterodox Christians. They were into nudity and vegetarianism they sound like early hippies as far as we can tell they got together men and women and they took off their clothes they bathed whether there were orgies or not we don't know they were vegetarians and the one thing we do know was that they had a sacrament called the consolamentum and the consolamentum Was um, it it was uh, ritualized vivisection, or not vivisection? uh, The term escapes me. But anyway, when you were dying, a fellow cathar would cut your wrists and open your veins in a warm bath of water, and you would die in that state you did not die a natural death and this was called the consolamentum well what Leo Levitov is claiming is that the Vonich manuscript is uh, a description, a manual for the perfecti of the Catharite sect telling how to properly carry out the consolamentum and uh, I see no reason to challenge it. I mean, even with my limited knowledge of German, once you get once you get the vowel and the the letter assignments right into this weird manuscript into this weird language and change it into english text or you know alphabetic text is what i'm trying to say you can see that there's enough german there and then these loan words in flemish and and so forth it looks to be true And what emerges from this, if we accept the Vonage manuscript as the only primary document on the Catharite faith, is that this was not a form of heterodox Christianity at all. It was much more radical than that, and this may explain the Church's fury at this group of people. It was a cult of ISIS. It can be traced straight back into the mystery religions of Eo Isis in Egypt and I have not seen any critical commentary on Levitov's work it was his book was published by this weird press in Redondo Beach that specializes only in books on military encryption I mean their catalog is a revelation to see I mean uh, it's amazing uh, and the Vonich the book on the Vonage manuscript stands out like a sore thumb because most of it is like three letter dictionaries of three letter words in Swahili and their numerical transforms and stuff like that uh, so that's the history to date of uh of the Vonich Manuscript. And it's not that um, askew of our subject because uh, all of this heterodoxy in Europe blends together. Uh, The presence of Theodore de Bray as an alchemical printer in Heidelberg may be a clue because there were survivals of this Catharite faith in the form of a heresy called the Brotherhood of the the Free Spirit. If any of you are familiar with the altarpiece called The Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch, it's thought that this was created uh, by a commission for... a a, 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 a congregation of the Brotherhood of the Free Spirit. And the Brotherhood of the Free Spirit was always associated, for some reason, we don't know why, with printers. Printers seemed, seemed to be the profession that the Brotherhood favored. And like the Catharites, they practiced ritual nudity, vegetarianism and gathering together in a ritual bath
1: just let go of the whole idea complex they would be liberated from this kind of, uh, of minutia. so uh, be- belief kills the spirit the spirit transcends belief so I wanted to say that then Someone asked about Bruno and D. Since I suggested you read Giordano Bruno in the Hermetic tradition, it's ironic that so little time was spent on Bruno. But on the other hand, I recommended you read the book so you should be well-informed on Bruno. Uh, For me, Bruno, uh, we just didn't get into that particular historical episode because I wanted to tell you about the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. But the thing to remember about Bruno is his discovery of the infinitude of the cosmos and that by an act of unencumbered observation, I mean, how many people had looked at the night sky... Before Bruno and they had not seen what he saw which was infinite space and suns hung like lamps unto the uttermost extremes of infinity by an act of uh, pure cognition he was able to destroy an entire cosmological vision that had uh, limited and confined the human soul for millennia. That's half of his story. The other half is he was burned at the stake for refusing to back down from this. And it's a a model for us all that trust your perception, trust your intuition, and then accept the consequences because this is what existential validity must be. Uh, As far as the relationship between D and Bruno, uh, the relationship is that they were both uh, derivative of the magical school that can be traced back to Henry Cornelius Agrippa von Nettlesheim who was the model for another model for Faust. Agrippa wrote uh, De Libre Quattro De Occultata Philosophia, four books of occult philosophy and, and that was the uh, the core work For European magic, all magic is derivative, all European magic can be traced back to the Agrippan system. And Agrippa was the direct student of the abbot Trithemius of Sponheim that we mentioned yesterday as the source of all the magical codes in the Middle Ages. If you're interested in a a brilliant but fictional treatment of John D. and Giordano Bruno, uh, I'd like to recommend a novel to you. It's called Egypt, spelled A-E-G-Y-P-T. It has the A in front of the E. It's by John Crowley, the same gentleman who wrote Little Big, which is a wonderful novel about the Magical interface between two worlds. But his book, Egypt, uh, fully half of the book is given over to a wonderfully rich retelling of the relationship between Bruno and Dee. Now, some people have wanted to say that Dee and Bruno actually crossed physical paths in London, but I've looked into it, and they missed each other for by about two weeks. Bruno was setting sail for France, I mean for England, as Dee was setting sail for France, and the Rosicrucian Enlightenment episode that, uh, I talked about, then someone asked about Tantra and uh, and the uh, contrast between the imaginative internalized invocation of the anima or the animus depending on your own sexuality. And that contrasted with uh, something which actually happens between two people. Uh, we didn't talk that much about the concept of the chemical wedding or the alchemical marriage is another way of putting it. But this is the the Western resonance to the Eastern idea of Tantra. And it is the idea that sexual energy being the rawest and and most accessible energy to the organism can be channeled into a higher spirituality. Well, it's entirely so. The problem is, of all paths, this is probably fraught with the... uh, Greatest difficulty because sexuality is such a uh, debased coinage in the modern world. In other words, you have to make your way with great care and great purity of intent into this, uh, in in Eastern Tantra that is actually practiced in this physical manner, uh, there is uh, usually the admonition is that the, you should have no attachment to your Tantrika, that the relationship should be entirely given over to uh, the technical details of this union and of course it has to do with the forestalling of orgasm and the raising of energy within the organism in the chemical marriage in the alchemical marriage due honor is given to the um, uh, importance and uniqueness of the other person In other words, it isn't the idea of the temple prostitute who serves uh, as the vessel for this process, but there's actually an effort to keep individual identities and individual uh, uh, dignity, in some sense, together. And uh, this is, you know, the higher up the mountain you go, the steeper it becomes. And when you begin to scale the heights of alchemical or ta- tantric sexuality, the fall back into the negredo can be shocking indeed. So. Uh, That's just an admonition. It's not designed to scare you off. It's just to say that in an age as sexually obsessed as our own, uh, you have to, as the I Ching says, inquire of the oracle once again if you have purity uh, of intent. Okay. Yeah. Is there also a feeling
0: between the
1: two? Yes, it's a complete alchemical system and uh, the energy is passed between. This is probably the highest completion that is possible. You know, the idea of romantic love I mean, I don't want to digress too much into this, but the ideal of romantic love was introduced into Europe in the, in the uh, 1400s mm-hmm. and earlier at the Angevine court of Eleanor of Aquitaine by troubadours. And the, this troubadour tradition can... Scholarship now reveals pretty convincingly that this is a, a, an esoteric Sufi Uh, system it also occurs in uh, Indian teachers such as Chaitanya you know Chaitanya is the guy who the Hare Krishnas go back to but the radical teaching of Chaitanya was that you could achieve ecstasy not by sitting in yoga but by dancing and singing on street corners and uh, it's now pretty clearly shown that Sufi uh, The penetration of Sufi ideas into Bengal was happening at the same time that these Sufi ideas were coming across from North Africa and into Spain and southern France. So... uh, It's a tremendously old and vital tradition, uh, but you have to be very careful. The romantic impulse is a real double-edged sword. It has been ever since the early 19th century, because you see the rise of romanticism. Of the as that term is normally understood, meaning the movements in art and literature of the early 19th century the rise of romanticism was a response to the dehumanization that was going on at that time the rise of industrialism and the further retreat into cities more massive than any that had ever been built before did you want to say something
3: like that I' going to add that the question was about healing and. I think there's a tremendous difference between the Indian and Tibetan tantric systems in what is practiced in Taoism in terms of dual cultivation or shingle cultivation. Um, In the Taoist system, certainly self-healing is of paramount importance before you can even consider uh, dual cultivation. Right. When dual (laughs) cultivation has then begun, then again, other considerations come in, but the Certainly in the Indian and Tibetan systems where Dakini's and various deities are invoked in the process of of their alchemical union, um, it's really quite different from the Taoist system which is devoid of belief in gods.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I talked yesterday about the alchemical stages. When you have reached the the albedo, the final whitening of these processes, that final whitening is, from a higher perspective, a new negredo. And you must always build and build again. And so uh, you have to be fairly confident that you have already realized a certain portion of yourself before you then embark uh, on these tantric uh, double uh, uh, experiments, because you know a lot of tantric text is to reads very vampiratical. Mm-hmm. I mean it's all about expelling the semen and then sucking it back in and it's like an energy war it turns into black magic it turn, you the the losing partner in these deals is just left a, a withered husk and this is not a a higher completion to be sought for
3: you're correct uh, there is in fact there are uh... Supposedly, uh, whether they're myths or, or documented stories about one Chinese empress who caused the death of, of more than a thousand men because of her vampirism, and it was sexual in nature. It was sexual in nature. Uh huh.
1: Okay, then a couple of other points here, and then we'll break up. Um, the gentleman here who had nothing to uh, comment or wanted to sit it out reminded me, uh, since we were talking about the Valentinian system this morning, my favorite archon, aside from Sophia, who's so interesting because of the little story about how she made the universe, but the 12th archon in the Gnostic system is a unique entity i don't know of another religious system that has this notion the 12th archon in the valentinian system is called the watcher and that's all he does he does not input into the system at all but is the witness And somehow then this creates a validating dimension that is very important. So I just want to affirm that the watcher is a very strong platform on which to stand. I mean, would that I could learn to keep my mouth shut. uh, Would that we all could. So uh, the watcher is a good archon to keep uh, active on your inner altar. So then the, the future occurs three times in the list, and uh, we don't have a lot of time, but what I would like to say about it this morning is uh, if you extrapolate all that has been said here, then you should see that... Um, the the Remember how I said that... Um, one view of alchemy was that the alchemist intervened in natural process in the role of a catalyst. For those of you who aren't chemists, a catalyst is something which causes a chemical reaction, which is going on anyway, to proceed at a faster rate. But the catalyst is not consumed in this process. It it simply accelerates it. And, uh, If we think of nature as a great alchemical furnace that continuously produces and brings forth wonders, then must it not be that humanity is the yeast of the Gaian alchemical uh, rarefaction and that human history is... The process of catalyzing the alchemical condensation. If we look back into nature before the advent of uh, speaking and writing human beings in the last 15,000 years, what we see are very leisurely processes. I mean, the Speciation of a single plant from another can occupy 50 or 60 thousand years. It never happens more quickly than that. And the grinding down of glaciers from the poles, these are processes that take hundreds of thousands of years. With the advent of human beings, an entirely new ontos of becoming, an entirely new category. Of becoming is introduced into the entire cosmos as far as we know because we cannot verify that there are other self-reflecting beings in the universe and this new ontos of becoming is what I call epigenetic as opposed to genetic all other change in the living world in the world of bios, of zoa. It, it occurs through genetic change, random modification of the genome, which is then subject to random selection. But with the advent of speech and writing, epigenetic means outside genetics. Epigenetic processes become possible and time accelerates one way of thinking about what is happening in this con in this cosmos is that it is a gradual conquest of dimensionality by becoming or process I mean we hardly have a word inclusive enough the earliest forms of life Uh, were probably uh, slimes on certain kinds of clays, self-replicating molecular systems. And then certain portions of this chemistry became light-sensitive. And then there was the sense of the division between light and darkness, which generated the notion of here and there... On some tremendously basic level within these early organisms. Once you have the concept of here and there, motility, the ability to move, the cilia that dot the surfaces of protozoans and stuff like this are elaborated, and a new dimension enters the picture, the dimension of time. Because notice that a journey from here to there is a journey from now to then. And then as a more refined perceptual apparatus arose and more refined systems of moving animal bodies arose, a steady conquest of dimensionality occurred, the movement of animals onto the land and so forth. Well, then with the advent of memory and memory must be mediated by language except at a very crude, instinctual level. Memory is a time-binding function. It's a way of somehow taking the past and calling up its essential properties so that they are co-present with the given moment of experience. And when you... Uh, It's one thing at the level of of the song and dance of pre-literate peoples, but once you begin to chisel stone and write books, then you're into the epigenetic domain in a big way. And once you cross the threshold into the world of electronic media and that sort of thing, once you achieve powered flight, once you can hurl instruments outside the solar system, these are time-binding functions. And uh, the alchemical intent, recall, was to accelerate nature's intent toward perfection. And the the alchemists all believed that nature was growing toward a a state of unity and perfection, that given millions and millions of years, everything would turn to gold. Everything would find its way toward the Platinian One. Uh, So now we live in a, a world that appears to be on the brink of its own death or extinction. And the reason we make that assumption is because our bridges are burning behind us. We see no way back to the world of the hunting and gathering pastoralists of the high Paleolithic, of the Saharan grasslands. We see no way back to, uh, you know, the gothic piety of a Europe with under 30 million people in it. Our bridges are burning, and our religions... Islam, Judaism, Christianity, uh, the major Western religions persistently insist that we are caught in a tightening spiral of ever-increasing speed that is carrying us toward an unimaginable confrontation with something which they call uh, God, the second coming, the Messiah, you name it. As cool-headed a rationalist as Arnold Toynbee when he sat down to write a study of history, he finally had to face the question, what is history for? And the, you know, the best he could come up with is, history must be about the entry of God into the domain of three-dimensional space. Well, we don't know what God is. Let's not call it God. Let's call it the philosopher's stone. Let's call it the Sophic hydrolith. And I believe that the chaos of our world, the apocalyptic intuition that informs our religions and our dreams is because ahead of us in time and now not that far ahead of us in time is something which taking a page from the mathematical concern called dynamics, we can call an attractor. The attractor lies ahead of us in time universal process is not driven by a downward cascade of Cartesian casuistry. That's the scientific notion and it leads to a universe of entropy and heat death millions of years in the future. But what we see around us is a continuing and accelerating complexification as human beings, machines, ecosystems, uh, the The solar system itself is beginning to knit itself into a tighter and tighter organization. Uh, I believe that alchemy provides the best metaphors for understanding this. Nature is the great alchemist par excellence and we as its minions through history are accelerating the condensation of being toward the unimaginable so that in my system uh, my way of thinking there's ultimately um, a symmetry break with ordinary history and uh, And I call it um, all kinds of different things, but here this morning, the transcendent other. The transcendent other casts an enormous shadow across the lower dimensional landscape of time. The stirring of the earliest life forms in the Devonian seas caught the call And every step that has been taken since then has been ever quicker, ever quicker toward uh, the transcendental other. It beckons us, and history is haunted by this thing. History is the shockwave of eschatology. History is a process that lasts, let's be generous, 25,000 years, Uh, uh, the wink of an eye in geological time. And in that 25,000 years, religious systems rise and fall, governmental systems, teachers come and go, and there is a, a, a sense of being caught in a whirlpool that is spinning us toward fusion with the unimaginable. And this is why the skies of earth are haunted by flying saucers. They aren't coming from other solar systems. They are scintillas. Remember this alchemical term, sparks. They are scintillas being thrown off from the alchemical quintessence which lies like a great attractor at the end of time and the purpose of science and technique and electronic media and information transfer and all of this stuff is to knit us together to dissolve our boundaries and to bring us to a point of singularity where language fails where we lean over meaning's edge and feel the dizziness of things unsaid. And uh, this lies now, I believe, within our lifetimes, within the lifetime of most of us this is actually going to break through I mean I'm like one of those people carrying a sign that says repent for the end is near it's as nutty a position as you can possibly hold that's why I suspect it has a reasonable chance of being dead on (laughs) so uh, that is the, the point of talking about alchemy and this melding and the production of the quintessence and all that it is because we are a gnat's eyelash away from a full confrontation with the transcendent other. Our dreams are haunted by it. Our reveries are filled with it. If we take a a psychedelic drug, it's revealed before us in all its splendor. Uh, This is the force that is pulling us inexorably toward uh, completion I remember once in a, in a psilocybin trance uh, I, I expressed concern about the state of the world and the noose spoke, the logo spoke and it said no big deal, this is what it's like when a species prepares to depart for the stars mm-hmm. this is the um, we are in the birth canal of a planetary birthing. And as you know, if you come upon a birth in progress, you would never dream that this is the culmination of a natural process. It looks like a catastrophe of some sort. There is moaning and groaning and screaming and thrashing and blood is being shed. And there is a feeling of the walls are closing in. And yet it is scripted into each of us as a microcosmic reflection of the completion of human history and not only human history because we are simply the hands and eyes of all life, all process, on this planet. Uh, The Gnostics believe that the earth is like an egg and that a moment will come when the egg must be split asunder there uh, you know I love to quote the the grateful dead you can't go back and you can't stand still if the thunder don't get you then the lightning will (laughs) that is what we are being funneled toward that is the message of alchemy that is the quintessence and perfection of uh, the human enterprise the biological enterprise I like to recall the Irish toast: uh, "May you be alive at the end of the world," and we have a real crack at it. It's uh, it's not a pessimistic vision; it's the most optimistic vision that one can suppose. And I think that's where I'd like to leave it this morning. I, I
0: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, 25 years ago, Terence thought that he and those who were there with him at the time may actually still be alive at the end of the world. Sadly, uh, Terence didn't make it himself, and the world is still going, but I suspect that most of the other people who attended that workshop are still with us. And it doesn't take too close a look at the world situation to infer that, well, maybe we should all be carrying signs that say, Repent, the end is near. (laughs) Of course, uh, it all depends on what one thinks of as being near, doesn't it? Well, this is the last of the tapes from Terence's May 1991 workshop that dealt with alchemy and the hermetic corpus. And from some of the comments that I've been seeing, you might have enjoyed it as much as I have. In the next few weeks, I'll be playing talks from several other people, but have no fear, there is still more of Terrence McKenna to come this year. And if you still want to listen to more about alchemy from Terrence, you can go back and re-listen to podcasts 223 through 226, which were titled McKenna, Hermeticism and Alchemy. And now I'd like to welcome our new readers to the Psychedelic Salon Magazine on Flipboard.com. If you're ever up late at night and can't get to sleep, you'll now find over 1,400 articles posted there. <laughs> and uh, that should keep you busy until the sun comes back up. Now, here are the titles of a few news stories that I've posted over the last several days. Six Branding Tips Unique to business; Americans will spend $23 billion a year on legal weed by 2020. Pot legalization hasn't done anything to shrink the racial gap in drug arrests. Supreme Court rejects states' challenge to Colorado pot law. First month of recreational weed sales in Oregon generates $3.5 million in tax revenues. The three most important marijuana battleground states in this year's elections. The real but exaggerated danger of stoned driving. Put weed in your ceviche for next-level weekend vibes. 5 Reasons Blue Dream is the most popular marijuana strain. And 5 substances that are far more addictive than marijuana and that are legal. Here's Action Bronson at a high-tech cannabis lab whipping up dabs. Are you surprised to know that black Americans are systematically shut out of the legal weed industry? Vaping weed is good for your skin. A $200 blunt and other products from the world of high-end weed. NFL lineman gives $10,000 to marijuana research and urges the league to match the donation. How potent is that pot brownie? Dry ice in a blender might crack the case. And mathematician compares DMT experience with LSD experience which is about our old friend Ralph Abraham, of whom there are almost 50 podcasts here in the Salon. And before I go, I'd like to remind you once again that right after I sign off, I'll play that 20 minutes of today's talk that I had to cut out due to the poor quality of the recording. I hope that if you listen to it, that you'll find something there worth your time. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. So, you know, there is
2: much still to be learned and still to be teased apart in the art history and uh, and the history of uh, heterodox thinking in Europe, of which alchemy then is seen to be one facet of a faceted gem that includes the Brotherhood of the Free Spirit, early Freemasonry, uh, Catharites, uh, 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 survivals of Manichaeanism, uh, bogomils in Yugoslavia, there are bogomil, Bogomilvostrian graves on the southern coast of Thessalonica, and uh, just a whole uh, zoo uh, of intellectual systems that have been forgotten and overlooked. This is what I meant when I said we will explore the stratigraphy of of lost thought systems and in some cases we possess quite complete skeletons in the case of alchemy. In the case of the Bogomils and the Cathars, what we possess is almost a foot bone or a tooth or a footprint. But someday, with luck, New textual material will emerge, and a new understanding of the role of heterodoxy in the formation of modern thought will emerge. Questions? Yes. And bless you. There's,
3: uh, there's born, the born-born blood book on Freemasonry is just recently published, and. Uh, uh, I've just about finished it. And this person is
2: a medieval English historian from Kentucky
3: in this country,
2: and I, I think he's sort of solved the problem of the which is a very interesting history because the Masonic historians themselves have been arguing over this for a couple hundred years, and so it's strange that the Vonnegut manuscript should be all of a sudden in the last couple of years sort of resolved, and then it seems that this prehistory thing is also yes. You make an interesting point. John brought me, John Glavis brought me a, an article yesterday. Uh, you know we're all tied up now in this Pluto return. I'm not an astrologer but John brought me an article talking about how, I don't know whether it was the last time or the time before last that the Pluto return occurred, uh, it is precisely the 1490s, the period that we're talking about when the Corpus Hermeticum was translated. And we are now in a period that is astrologically uh, exactly equivalent to that period, and the Vonich Manuscript appears to have been deciphered. I mean, I'm willing to accept it. You mentioned this revelation of the true nature of Freemasonry, and of course, what is going on at the moment that is askew of our subject but tremendously exciting and relevant to the idea of of lost knowledge coming to light is that this is the the golden moment in mayan studies it is happening right now day by day hour by hour minute by minute the log jam has been broken The Mayan glyphs are being uh, deciphered, no shit. And uh, it it has to do with an entirely new approach that some Russian linguists have taken. And if any of you are... It it will never happen again. So far as I know, there are now, with the Mayan decipherment, no real undeciphered languages left. Uh, The Harappan script was deciphered a few years ago, but really it wasn't that interesting because we only possessed something like 6,000 characters in Harappan. But the literature of the Maya, when you take not only the hieroglyphic, the, the stone texts, but when you add in the ceramic texts, why we have a lot of Mayan material and uh, it is being deciphered at a furious rate. If you're interested in this, Linda Scheele has written a book called "A Forest of Kings. And uh, what a how I do envy this woman because what she is doing is writing the first history of the Maya in a thousand years. I mean, this is not, we're not now dealing in the realm of gods and myths. We're dealing with stuff like on the 14th of May, 642, an army from al Caracol met an army from Tikal and triumphed and deposed uh, uh, three flint and placed on the throne, it's this kind of stuff, real history, and uh, the, the conceits of Mayan religion and Mayan courtly life are all coming into focus, and it's very exciting. Uh, It's uh, all these people who have tried to make the Maya into some kind of Atlantean civilization should be running for cover (laughs) at this point because the picture that emerges is, is not as pretty as we might wish, but hey know the truth and the truth shall set you free I would choose truth over illusion any time no matter how damaging it might be to somebody's uh, uh, conceptions of these things so uh, and if any of you are interested in these subjects uh, another area where this has occurred is some of you may know the book by Michael Chadwick called The Decipherment of Linear B. Linear B is a proto-Minoan language and uh, a linguist at Cambridge named Michael Ventris, a genius in the 50s, took this language. There was no Rosetta Stone this is the amazing thing. You, you know what I mean by a Rosetta Stone. When, you see, in the 19th century, the great mystery was how to read the Egyptian hieroglyphs. And before they were deciphered, the Egyptians were treated like the Maya and people thought that the secrets of the universe were chiseled on those obelisks and tombs. Well then, a scholar in the grand army of Napoleon, uh, Champillon, was a a soldier found a a a tablet which had a column of Demotic Greek a column of another language I forget which one and a column of Egyptian hieroglyphs and they were able to realize that it was saying the same thing three times and that opened it up for them but that's like a crib sheet uh, because you it's easy if you have the same text in a known language but in the case of the Maya And in the case of Linear B, and in the case of Harappan, there was no Rosetta Stone. Well, then you talk about an excruciatingly difficult problem to solve. And I'll explain to you how it was done with the Maya, because it's so neat. It turns out that Mayan is a rebus language. What does this mean? Do you remember when we were kids and in comic books there would be these things where it would show a a picture of an eye and then it would show a picture of a saw going through a log of wood and then it would show a picture of an ant and then it would show a picture of a red rose. This is a sentence which says, I saw Aunt Rose. But now notice what's going on here. It's that it's all based on puns that depend entirely on a knowledge of the spoken language. If you lose the sounds of the spoken language how the hell could you ever tell that a picture of an eye, a saw, an insect, and a rose says, I saw my maternal relative on my mother's side? I mean, it just is impossible. (laughs) It's absolutely impossible in that situation to reconstruct meaning unless you have the sounds. Well, how do you recover the sounds of a language dead a thousand years. Well, uh, these Soviet linguists had the good sense to go and look at living Mayan languages, of which there are 15. Uh, living Mayan languages uh, in the Americas, and they discovered one of these dialects where when you set Mayan hieroglyphs in front of these people and they named what they saw, meaning came out of their mouths. And that broke the logjam, and then, you know, you just rev up your computers and, and use all the standard tools of modern linguistics and philology, and the stuff just begins to pour out, clear as day, no problem.
0: They asked
2: Yes, they had to go to a mine. You're right. Good point. It, it had never occurred to them. <laughs> because they always, always before when they would show this stuff to minds, they would say, what does it mean? Instead of saying, what do you see here? And then when they said what they saw there, then meaning came out of their mouths. So it was very, very neat. It shows once again the hubris of modern scientific methods that we tend to dismiss the aboriginal and the primitive. I mean, this was to turn it toward my own favorite subject. This was the state of modern medicine. Nobody would ask people in the Amazon basin, you know, what plants do you use for malaria, brain tumor, shrinkage, and so forth and so on, because they were just dismissed as as superstitious primitives. It was thought that the doctrine of signatures was operating. They didn't realize uh, how subtle and how complete human knowledge systems grow under the care of those people for whom it uh, it really matters is there anything that needs to be said about this um, the redemption the project of the redemption of spirit from matter turned into the project of redeeming the general of uh, society of the time toward a utopian vision. And uh, this is working right up until the present. Millenarianism is still with us. Marxism is the last great millenarian faith, you know, the belief in the worker state. It occupies the same relationship to these alchemical utopias as Heideggerian existentialism has to uh, second-century Gnosticism. The poetry has gone; the the Baroque filigree has been stripped away, but the impulse is still toward a, a perfect society where each from his ability according to his needs and means. And it lives on. I mean, democracy is also an effort, let us not forget, to recapture the style of fifth century Athens. I mean, we forget that this was a city-state half of whose inhabitants were slaves, and yet we are so under the spell of the utopian uh, dream that we continue and not without import and reason I think to try to labor toward a just and decent world where the lion lies down with the lamb and that was and it remains uh, the alchemical dream
3: I very much enjoyed flashbacks from, like, to memories of my I uh, actually majored in history in college and the first history professor that I had was, was a wonderful old man but really when I now look back at it taught the history of ideas the rest of my major in history was pretty much politics and all this kind of thing and it's kind of a wonderful experience to suddenly get back to what got me turned on about history and what, Gets me turned on and opens my mind again and, and to, to looking at some of these thoughts and some of these things that have been forgotten, suppressed, and put down. and So that's bullshit as a, a, a traditionally trained scientist saw, and so on. I'm opening my eyes to the fact that, me, yes, there are you know, many things that we must and we can't learn from. What's start with before all the great ideas that are out there. We just have to grasp them and find what's right, apply it. I, too, am interested in how we make this more
2: meaningful, this future. One thing that occurs to me to say, um, I, I once... In one of these revelatory dialogues with the Logos, asked the question, Why me? Why are you telling me this? Because my, uh, you know, I was a poor hippie, I was penniless, I was a traveler. And the answer was uh, instantaneous. Mm it was because you don't believe in anything. Because you don't believe in anything. And I, I think that that's a very pure position to hold. We're not trying to ensnare you to abandon your Jewishness or your Presbyterianness or it, belief If you believe in something, you have precluded the possibility of believing in its opposite. And you have hence limited your freedom. Everything is to be judged by its efficacy, by its effectiveness in the real world. And... um, I think that uh, I have a horror of all belief systems. I just don't like them. If somebody tells you they have the answer, flee from this person I mean they are obviously some kind of low being who has not at all recognized the true size and dimension of the cosmos that we're living in and if you can keep yourself free of encumbering beliefs then your dialogue with the logos uh Can go forward unhindered. Sometimes, when I am in the the trance of psilocybin, I will say to the entity Begin to show me yourself as you are for yourself. Don't give me the scaled down, humanized version. Begin to show your true nature. And after a few moments of that, then I have to raise my hand and say, enough. You know, I I can't handle more than that. This goes back to the statement Mm -hmm. made yesterday or the day before about that the universe is not only stranger than we suppose, it's stranger than we can suppose. Therefore, we are given tremendous latitude in what we think and what we conceive. But if you begin to believe something, then you are pulled down because every belief has consequences, you know. I mean, a a perfect example is, uh, as some of you may know, When Muhammad ascended into heaven from the site of uh, what was to become the Mosque of Omar, from the site of the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, uh, he happened to be on horseback. Well, if you believe Muhammad ascended into heaven, imagine the theological and hermeneutic problems posed by the horse he was riding because it went with them. This is a perfect example of how intellectual baggage drags us down because uh, belief always then contains absurdity. I mean, the, the ontological status of this horse has troubled Islamic theologians for centuries.